Good morning. Oh, come on, we can do better than that. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, that's better. <clears throat> you may have been very, quite loud on the first one. My ears are all stuffed up. I wear ear, you know, hearing aids, but uh, I still can't hear, can't see, uh, old age. <clears throat> and someone will have to remind me when time is done because I, I see a clock back there, but I don't see the little hands on it, so... <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, to uh, the first uh, chapter of Matthew, chapter 1. I thought uh, Rod was going to give my message here today. He opened up with this at the Lord's Supper, so, but we're going to revisit it. Matthew, chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting in making her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin, the virgin, not a virgin, shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, that as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And then the Lord assures us that he blesses the reading of his word, and we trust him for that. Well, this is a fulfillment of much of what was given to us in the Old Testament regarding the coming of the Messiah. We have the end here. And what I'd like for us to do is go back through some of the Old Testament prophecies, some of the predictions in the Old Testament that bring us to this first chapter, this which we've just read in the uh, first chapter in Matthews. Um, Joseph, a gracious man, <clears throat> remember that Mary was uh, betrothed to Joseph, and that betrothal was uh, far more than an engagement as today. In fact, they were deemed married except for the fact that it wasn't consummated yet. And so there would be a need of divorcement and potentially a death penalty for her. She had gone, if we go to, uh, for instance, Luke <coughs> chapter 1, you remember Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the Baptist, and Mary goes out to visit there for three months. After three months, as she returns, there's probably some physical appearance of a pregnancy with her. And so now jo Joseph is pondering this whole issue. And being a gracious man, he wants to put Mary, whom he loves, away secretly. But of course, the Lord speaks to him, and he, in fact, then follows that which the Lord has. The birth of the Lord Jesus here, God entering into humanity in the person of Christ Jesus, our Lord. The prophecy, however, begins quite far away. In fact, it begins in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, and I'm going to have 
you go back with me. Hold your place in Matthew. We are, I think, going to have enough time to get here, but I'd like for us to, to at least ponder the verses as I, as I uh, look at them. So I'd appreciate you looking at them with me. Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, of course, he's speaking here to the serpent, to Satan, in fact, that there'll be an enmity put between him and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That's Satan's seed and the woman's seed. And that he shall bruise the head, that is the seed of the woman, and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman, whoever this child is, has a genealogy that is different than the rest of us. His lineage isn't from a man, his lineage is from a woman. It's interesting here that in the context of the fall, we have, in fact, the first promise of a deliverer and a deliverance, the seed of a woman, the seed of a woman. There is an aspect here, of course, also that this is not simply... um, an angelic being, or even a divine being, but it is going to be of the human race, a human being. But there is an element of divinity here as well. Because if you go to the first verse of chapter 4, for instance, where now um, we have Eve bearing forth Cain, and she says this is a son given from God, but he is Jehovah. She was anticipating a redeemer that was, in fact, God. And so here we have the seed of the woman as a provision of deliverance. We have that seed continue on. We have it in, for instance, the 22nd, turn with me, to the 22nd chapter of, uh, of Genesis. Again. Verse, um, let's see, verse 18. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I'm not going to read the whole section here to give context, just to explain the context here. This is an Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And he says that in your seed, now when we see in that Abrahamic covenant, the the word seed, it is used in two different ways. It is used in a corporate way, and it always speaks of the seed of Abraham, the nation Israel. And it's used in an absolute way, when it speaks of an individual, that's what's being spoken of here, an individual. And it always speaks of Christ. 
the Messiah, when it's spoken of in an absolute way. It is in an absolute sense that this is brought forth. And it says here, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. It is through the seed of the woman, but now it's contracted, that it's also going to be through the seed of Abraham, speaking of a given nation, and an given individual within that nation. But it's not going to be limited in blessing to just the nation. The blessing extends itself to all of the nations, speaking of course here of the Gentile nations, that this one who is the promised deliverer, the seed of the woman, will also be of the seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel, but not limited just to blessing the nation of Israel, but blessing all of humankind, all the nations. Three elements within the uh, uh, Abrahamic covenant, actually there are seven elements within the Abrahamic covenant, but we can break it down into three, because all seven would, would uh, synthesize into these three areas. The land, the seed, and the blessing. And we have two here, because the land is not material to this, what is being said here as a, as a uh, prophecy progressing to the first chapter of, uh, of Matthew. That's particularly to the nation Israel. But the seed and the blessing does apply to us. The seed of Abraham and the blessing. And we're beneficiaries. Most of us here, I think, are beneficiaries. I don't know of a, a Jew among us. We're Gentiles receiving that blessing, that extended blessing, through the seed of the woman, which is the seed of Abraham. Let's take one more step. One more step. The seed of Judah, 49th chapter, please, of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49. Now these are Jacob's last words to, uh, <clears throat> to his sons. He draws his sons together and he prophesies about uh, each of his sons. And he's speaking down to Judah in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Verse 10 is the principal verse that I want us to look at. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That is rule, kingly rule, shall not depart from Judah. Nor a lawgiver from among his, uh, from between his feet. Until Shiloh comes. As I understand it in the Hebrew, the, we, we like this word Shiloh because it represents the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? But the, the original suggests something like this. Until he comes to whom it belongs. And so the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the staff of law, the lawgiver, from between his feet, 
until he to whom it belongs comes. Now, isn't that speaking of the Lord Jesus? What's interesting here, of course, is now we've come from the seed of the woman, which could be any sphere of humanity, just a woman, drawn down now to the seed of Abraham and the nation Israel, and now to one of the 12 tribes within that nation, Judah. And there's, of course, not just a hint, but an actual declaration of his rule as king. Now, is that important? Well, I think it's exceedingly important when we look at the next particular prophecy regarding the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. We see here, as I said, the promises of a, de of a deliverer brought down to now the tribe of Judah, someone in the tribe of Judah. Isaiah chapter 7 gives us now the method of his coming, and I think we'll see why the, it's important to know that, in fact, there is a seed of Judah as well as a seed of the woman. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, a, a familiar portion, of course, for us. Verse uh, 6, for unto us a child is born. I'm sorry, that is a familiar portion, but we'll get to that in a moment. Chapter 7, verse uh, 14 and, uh, 13 and 14. Then he said, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but <clears throat> will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now let me take a little time to give you the backdrop here for this particular um, prophecy. You uh, may well remember that the nation Israel, after um, the Davidic rule, Solomon now is, is gone and the kingdom is broken down into two parts, under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There's a split among the, the, the tribes, Judah is being one, the southern tribe, and the other ten tribes the northern part was called Israel. And so there's a separation. The kingdom was broken down into two parts. The northern tribes, the ten tribes, had a false lineage, a kingly lineage. In fact, they had multiple dynasties. But Judah, and, and Benjamin was along with Judah, so that's the other tribe there, but Judah itself was a was the lineage to the Lord Jesus. Remember that we read of the seed of Judah. The kingly line comes of the seed of Judah. Now we've not covered the Davidic uh, covenant, but there the promise made to David is that, that his kingly rule, that is his family, or one in his family will have an everlasting rule. And so we have this scene now where Israel, the ten northern tribes, are in great opposition to Judah. There's this split. And Israel makes a covenant with Syria because there's a great power rising. The Assyrians are rising the Assyrian Empire, so to speak, 
the superpower of the Middle East at that time, is rising and gobbling up all the little kingdoms and both Israel and Syria are in jeopardy, but so is Judah. And so Syria and Israel get together and they say, okay, maybe perhaps we can offset the forces of Assyria if we band together. They call upon the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, King Ahaz, and say, well, will you join us? And he says, uh, no. So they said, well, okay, we'll come and attack you. We're going to depose you. We're going to put somebody else in, a puppet. Now, Ahaz was a, an idolater, an ungodly king, but he was in a lineage. There was only one dynasty in Judah, and he was of that dynasty. And so Syria and, and the northern kingdom, Israel, is going to come down and they're going to set aside Ahaz as king, put a puppet from a completely different dynasty in this place, and then hope that, the, uh, that Judah will be part of this conglomeration fighting off Assyria. Well, that's the threat to the lineage of the Lord Jesus, and God isn't going to permit that. And so he tells, um, verse 3, Let, let's just take a look at this. So, he, so the Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, this is a key verse, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller field, and say to him, take heed and be quiet, do not fear be, or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, Syria and Israel, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remilah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remilah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in it, in the wall, for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus saith God, and all, and what this is, uh, follows is what the Lord says. And so here you have these two that are now in opposition to Israel. They're going to, uh, to Judah. They're going to attack Judah to bring them into the sphere of opposition to um, Assyria. Instead of looking to the Lord, Ahaz, the king of Judah, is writing letters feverishly and preparing presents to send to Assyria, asking Assyria to come and oppose these two that are going to attack him. And Isaiah comes in and he says, look, don't fear. Don't look to the king of Assyria. Look to the Lord. Ask for a sign. If you're troubled, ask for a sign. The Lord will give you the sign. And all of a sudden, this man who is, as I said, an idolater, becomes quite pious, and he says, well, no, 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 no. I, I, I can't ask for a sign. You know, I think that's in what, Deuteronomy chapter 6 or so. Uh, no, 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 I, I can't. God's forbidden for, for me to ask for a sign, so I'm not going to ask for a sign. Well, God wasn't... Uh, expecting him to ask a sign, God was saying to him, look, I'll give you a sign. I can see that you're shaking in your boots. And he says, no, I don't, I don't want a sign. And so, uh, the Lord nonetheless is going to have to deal with this issue and just to shorten what we're dealing with here, the Lord does give him uh, a sign. In fact, he gives him two signs. 
one we've read about the virgin birth, the virgin, but that's not to him. That's to take place 700 years further on in history. That's what took place in Matthew chapter 1. And so what, what is that sign to Ahaz in the immediate? Well, the sign wasn't to Ahaz specifically. It was to the house of David, to Judah. Let's read the verses again. Verse, four, uh, verse uh, 14, uh, well, verse 13. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. It is a small thing, uh, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The you, it's difficult in the English language, but the you in these two verses, wherever you read the word you, it is specifically in the plural. It, this isn't addressed to um, Ahaz, this is addressed to the tribe of Judah, to the house of David. And so this sign would take place 700 years yet into the future. But as I said, that, what's the use of that sign to Ahaz? And what follows, of course, is the sign to Ahaz. Verse 15, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house days that have not come since the day of Ephraim, uh, departed from Judah. What is he saying here? He's saying, well, look, why specifically did God ask Isaiah to bring his son, his young boy, his young son? Well, he brought his young son to fulfill this prophecy, because that's what's being spoken of. This isn't the child of verse 13 and 14. What he's saying is that before Isaiah, uh, Ahaz, before Isaiah's son comes to the moral maturity where he's able to tell the difference between good and evil, both those kings that are coming to attack you will be gone. And within three years it was done. God dealt with them. And so that was the prophecy to Isaiah, uh, to uh, Ahaz, regarding the immediate time. But the prophecy of the virgin was yet 700 years into the future. 700 years into the future. And so the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Who is this one that is to come? We saw that he was going to be a deliverer. We note that he was born of a virgin, utterly unique birth, born of a virgin, but who is he? Turn to chapter 9 of, of Isaiah. By the way, Isaiah is broken down into defined sections. So within the book of Isaiah, we have chapter, chapter 7 through 12 really is a book. And oftentimes it is a, a called the book of Emmanuel. It deals with specifics regarding this God who came from above. God among men. Chapter 9 is part of that as well. In chapter 9 now of Isaiah, 
speaks to us of the person. For unto us, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it in judgment and justice, from the time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The son is born, as we saw in, in the first chapter of Matthew, Jesus. Uh, but the child is born, Jesus, but the son is given and in the original, in the Hebrew, that speaks of a gift that only God can give. The gift of this one, the Son, the everlasting Son of God, is a gift from God. A gift that only God can give. It's a heavenly gift. And so we have these two aspects of, uh, of this one who is to come. He's both human and divine. He's both man and God at the same time. One person, but with two natures. God and man, but one person. We have to be careful. Sometimes what we do is we divide this one person. We give him different personalities. He's acting just like a, a man. So this is his man's side, right? His human side. And this is his divine side. This is the, the side that God deals with. We, when we go through the Gospels and we see the miracles and the actions of the Lord Jesus, we tend to oftentimes make those divisions. In his person, he's never divided. He is one. One person. There are two natures within him, but he is one person. He's not a split personality one person only and so we have this wonderful picture here of that he is the God man uh, in uh, Micah of course we see the place where he was born born we won't go there but Micah brings out the place that he was born in Bethlehem Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah Isaiah was uh, uh, ministering at this time of Ahaz and Hezekiah, a number of other kings, to the southern nation to, of, uh, to, to Judah, the southern kingdom of, uh, of the whole of Israel. And uh, Micah was as well a contemporary, but in a different part. And he presents to us the place, and that's important because it is the house of bread, but more than that, it is the place of David, the house of David. Okay. And so we see this careful, these predictions, these promises that are given. And we see how careful God is in guarding that initial seed of the woman throughout the, all of the time of history until the birth that we read of in the New Testament. Now back to... Matthew, in chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. And there are some elements here that are quite meaningful. First of all, <clears throat> verse 20 and 21, we have the proclamation. For she shall bring forth a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. She shall bring forth a son. In verse 20, But while he thought about, that's Joseph, thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her 
is of the Holy Spirit. There's the proclamation. She shall bear forth a son which is conceived of the Holy Spirit. A son. As a son of God, he is, speaks of his divinity. As a son of man, it speaks of his racial beginnings. As a son of Mary, the aspect that's human. As a son of David, it's messianic and Jewish. Of the son of, as the son of Abraham, it's redemptive. It takes on, as we've noted, not only the nation Israel, but all of humanity, all of the nations. The son that is to be born, which is conceived of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, we read there that that one that is to be born is that Holy One. Now we could say that Adam and Eve were born in innocence. Now Jesus was innocent, but he was far more than that. He was holy, that holy one. Innocence has a negative aspect to it. Innocence is the lack of or the... Um, the lack of guilt or the lack of sin. But that's not true with, with, um, with holiness. That holy one, that's a positive aspect. Sin was abhorrent to him. It wasn't that he was guiltless, but he was opposed to all guilt. Absolutely holy in every way. He was holy because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, because there was no sin in him. Absolutely holy. This person that we spoke of that is both God and man is stated to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt call his name Jesus and he is to be called Emmanuel, God and man. The incarnation is speaks of God coming into humanity, God taking on himself human flesh. The virgin birth speaks to us of the manner in which God did that. We sometimes mix these two elements up. God declared from chapter 3 of Genesis that he's going to come into this human scene. And the way that he did that is through the virgin birth. The way that he accomplished it is through the virgin birth. They shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Have you thought of how God is with us? In what ways is God with us? Well, of course, God is with us in the flesh. We read of that, right? God is with us as a redeemer, for only God can redeem. Sinless as Jesus was in himself, he couldn't die for us all were he not God. For in that death, God was reconciling 
us unto himself. That's the power in, that, in the cross, isn't it? God with us in all fullness. God with us as we see in the Lord Jesus Christ as an example. God with us as the one who presents to us what he is like, what God is like. When we see the Lord Jesus, we see the Father and the Spirit of God. God with us as a companion. I was just speaking to a brother this morning in regards to that. All the trials, the difficulties of life, some of the elements, physical, mental, and even spiritual, sometimes, depression, spiritual depression. All of these elements, there's one yet there that can, as our companion, as the one that comes alongside us, can help us in those situations. And he is with us always, he promises as well. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. That's really not a name, not a title. That's a characterization, what God is. And then, of course, we have, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, in verse 21, latter part of verse 21. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. What is that? For he shall save his people from their sins. Joshua, as when he was uh, an apprentice and a helper of, of Moses in Egypt, was named not Joshua, but Heshua. But when he be became that full uh, attendant of Moses, his name was changed to Joshua. The name for God was added, Jehovah, J, jo Joshua. Heshua means salvation. Joshua means God's salvation or God's savior. Jehovah salvation or Jehovah savior. That's the name of Jesus. It is that common name in the Old Testament, but how sweet it is to us. And so he came to save. We call him Jesus, Joshua, Jehoshua. Why? Because he came to save his people from their sins. He saved us, for saving us from the defilement of sin. Are you ever conscious of that defilement? As Christians, we certainly should be, shouldn't we? Conscious of the defiling aspect of sin. He saved us from the defilement of sin. He saved us from the condemning power of sin. He saved us from the wrath of sin. A holy God poured out his wrath, not upon us, but upon the sin-bearer, the one who is bearing our sins on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Joshua of God. And the, all of the wrath, the holy wrath, was poured out upon him. None, not a drop is left for us. He saved us from the big I, the great I, the me, self. I don't know about you, but that's my problem the eye that ever gets in the way. 
the eye of self-wisdom, the eye of self-effort, the eye of self-righteousness, self. And that eye, that old man is nailed to the cross and we're called to reckon him to be on that cross. Judicially, he is considered to be dead. Practically, of course, he raises his head, if you're anything like me, on a regular basis. But the Lord came to save us from self. And the Lord came to save us from this present evil age or world. By being crucified with Christ, we are crucified to the world. You see, in each of these elements, what stands between us and sin, what stands between us and self, and what stands between us and the world is the cross of Calvary. The cross of Calvary. And so we ought to be dead to sin. The wrath was fully borne by the Lord. We ought to now in the present ought to be dead to sin, dead to self, and dead to the world. You see, this one of heaven, this eternal Son of a God, came and took upon himself flesh, became a man, an actual man. He didn't come here for a visit. He didn't put a shroud on of humanity. He became a man so that he could go to the cross of Calvary and become that or complete that work of deliverance that was promised way back in chapter 3 of Genesis. And he went to that cross and he completed that work on your behalf and mine. Yes, Christmas is the time of incarnation. Yes, it is the time of a virgin birth. But the world will set out the, the little trinkets for Christmas They'll set out the decorations. Some will even set out the nativity scenes, little porcelain pictures or, or porcelain statues of Mary and Joseph and the little baby Jesus. And on the 26th of December, they pick it all up and put it away for next year, forgetting the reason why he came. The reason why he came wasn't to remain a babe in the manger. The reason why he came is to save us from our sins. The cross was in view. His purpose was accomplished in the cross of Calvary. And so may we take that in today. The promises of old meticulously fulfilled. God guarded that seed of the woman all the way through to the birth, the incarnation that we've just read about. So that that redemption might be fulfilled on our behalf. And it was so. When we look at Christmas, we may rejoice in the coming of the Son of God, entering into humanity. God with us. But his purpose is to redeem us to himself. He entered human scene so that he might purchase us for himself and heaven. He came to earth so that we might be with him in heaven. What a privilege. Christmas, far more than just a babe in a manger.
Let us pray. Our Father and our gracious God, we acknowledge again, O blessed Father, that we don't understand the depth of your love. But we will say that we understand this, that the expression of your love is the person of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus, and we do understand him to a degree. This lovely one who is the delight of heaven, of whom the angel, in whom the angels rejoiced, came into this sphere of his creation, taking upon himself flesh. Sinful flesh, it says in thy word, yet apart from sin. Oh, how we thank thee, Father, that being perfect and holy, he could go to that cross as an, and as the God-man could die and yet redeem all unto himself in that great work of redemption. We thank the O Blessed Father as we remember the Incarnation and the Virgin Birth, that you took and placed the, the very delight of your heart into this world to save sinners. And now we thank the O Blessed Father that that work was fully accomplished. Not only a manger do we see, Father, but we see the cross. And we thank the O Blessed Father for the one who so willingly went to that tree on our behalf. And in this season, O Blessed Father, may we remember the full Christmas story, the manger and the cross. It is in his blessed name we pray. Amen.